Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. I also host the podcast Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, which you can listen to if you need your literary fix fast. This podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, is for anyone out there who wants to feel better in their bodies like I do. There's a private support group that I started on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. And all of us share tips, suggestions, recipes, meal ideas, and generally just give each other lots and lots and lots of support so that it isn't so hard to do what should be simple, but somehow isn't. So please listen to the podcast, hear stories from people just like you who have struggled and overcome things and have ideas and suggestions. And let's just do this together. We got this. Thanks for listening. Okay, this episode with Anne Garvin might be the most helpful thing that I've done in a while. I feel like she gave me the best advice, not just me, but everybody. Anne Garvin is also an author, as are a lot of my guests because of my other podcast. She is a USA Today bestselling author of I Like You Just Fine When You're Not Around, The Dog Year, and On Maggie's Watch. She has an upcoming book called I Thought You Said This Would Work. She also, and this is why we talked on this podcast in particular, has a PhD in health and exercise physiology and psychology, and she taught nutrition and weight loss for 25 years at the University of Wisconsin. So listen to my talk with Anne. You are going to get specific actionable tips that will really, really help. I promise. Welcome, Anne. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. Oh, it's so nice to be here. And that phrase, <laughs> I can feel that in my heart. <laughs> well, you have such a unique background and there's so many reasons I wanted to talk to you on this show. So can you start by telling everybody your, both your, per, I want to know your personal journey and also your professional one, because you're a professor and an expert and all the rest. So Lots to discuss. <laughs> so much. I know. I'll try to keep it short and not start with my childhood. But I um, no, start with your childhood. What, like, tell me when it all started and your own sort of experience with your weight and body, and then we'll go into your professional life if you don't okay. mind. It's a little no, intrusive. I don't mind me, at all. No, it's great. I was always a stick thin kid growing up, and I took puberty. Took a really long time to get hit me, you know. But then, and my mother was very, very small and very tiny until she had babies. And then she changed and I experienced how much she disliked that change. And so when I was young, I got the message, you know, and God, I love my mom and she died in the last couple of years and she was my best friend and nobody does it exactly right. So I just have to blame all that. But she did have you know, a a sort of us versus them theory about her body. And I got that message, you know, that it's not okay to have a soft belly and aging is not the greatest thing. And and I I think I internalized that. And it took me many years to kind of come around from that. I lived with a lot of girls who had for sure eating disorders that went undiagnosed. I probably had one too, just in terms of, you know, not really being able to see my body in the way that it was actually. And then also thinking that you can manipulate your body in a way that maybe you can't. I think we all go through things like that. Maybe all is a little bit of an umbrella term, but I think people do. And then, so, you know, for many years, I've had this very sort of a push-pull with this idea of what the cultural idea of a body is and what a woman's actual body is and what it's for and how it's really our best friend and it only, if our bodies are the greatest that it can only be, 
then that's the only way we can live the life that we really want to live. And so your body is really your best friend, but it took me a long time and a lot of thinking to kind of come around to that idea. And I think probably if I were, if someone were to ask me what the key to weight and weight management is, it's really understanding that your body is on your side and that it only wants to do the best for you. Like I think of my body, like I think of my dog, like I love my dog so much and I would never push on my dog's soft belly and say, do some sit-ups. Like it would, it's brutal. I would never do that. And so I always think, why would I do that to my body, which I really love as much as or more than I love my dog, because my body falls out of whack, then I'm not able to do any of the things that I want to do. So anyway, took me a while to get there. But you know, after babies, your body changes. And you have to understand that after menopause, your body changes and through menopause, your body changes. And instead of really hating your body for that, I think we have to understand that those things are like fantastic and they offer all kinds of benefits. So I started working as a nurse right out of college and, and I didn't work with women. I mostly worked with men because I worked at the VA hospital, but I got fascinated with how to get people moving in the hospital to make them feel better. So I went and got a master's in exercise physiology and a PhD in exercise psychology. And that's where my thinking came in terms of weight. I think I'm getting, I'm meshing my personal story and my professional story together, but I don't think I can tease that apart. No, this is great. This is, this is great. Keep going. Yeah. So once I started studying health psychology, I had a focus primarily in weight and body and how it changes based on both exercise, but also mood and anxiety and depression. That was where all my research was. I started to understand that the way that we feel about our bodies and the understanding of our cultural influence on our bodies is the first step to understanding, you know, where we should be in terms of our body weight. And then I started talking to students about it. And I found that the current day students were really no different than I was, you know, 30 years ago in terms of my thinking about the body. Certainly, the culture is better about a wider range of body, but that's, I mean, we're getting there, but we're certainly not there now because now people are feeling better if they don't have a booty, you know, if they do have a booty. Whereas in my day and age, it was stick thin, flat stomach, 14-year-old boy, no hips. So we're just kind of pushing women back and forth into this idea that their body is for external consumption and not for loving your kids, doing the things you want to do, reading books, writing books, traveling, experiencing the world. And if we can kind of tease out those two things, then we can start to think about what would we do that would care for our bodies in the best way and how do we love it? And I think loving your body in this day and age is one of the hardest things to do because we've removed ourselves from our bodies. Our bodies are this annoying thing that doesn't pull its weight in terms of thinness. And then we have our bodies over here who are getting us to bring our kids to soccer and do all of the things that we enjoy. And we haven't put those two things together. And Like, I have really strong ideas about how to do that. And I certainly have talked about that in a a major way. 
But I, I do think that that's our first step. Like people are always saying to me, so what, what do you think about weight loss? What's the first step for weight loss? And I would say the first step for weight loss is the hardest step, which is trying to get around your thinking about your body and what it's for and what works the best. So for me, here's the other thing. I don't compete with other women in their bodies. I look at other people's bodies and I admire them. I wonder about their struggles. I think about them all the time. But you know who I compete with? my younger self. And that's the hardest competition of all, because with every ticking moment, that self is farther away. So, and that self, that younger self didn't have babies and didn't have a million things to do and could exercise whenever I wanted, et cetera, et cetera. And so that competition is particularly poisonous. However, I look at those pictures, you know, and I think, oh my gosh, I was in such good shape. And then I look at myself now and I kind of, bully myself about it. You know, I have a softer belly and I look different. So I had to understand a couple of things about bodies. And one of the things I had to understand is, so as a scientist, we know that everything falls on a a normal curve. So there are always going to be people with a percentage of body fat that's higher for their health. And there's always people that have a percentage of body fat that are very low and that's perfectly okay. And everybody else falls here. So if we think everybody should be up here, very thin, you know, I guess it's down here, very thin, then we are even falling in the face of science that says to us, everybody's genetics determines what is the correct body fat percentage. And so, you know, that's another thing that we have to fight with, this idea that there's this ideal body shape and, shape, and it's the shape that we see on the Oscars, right? Or we, it's the shape we see in all the catalogs with women who have no breasts and no hips and the clothes hang on them like a hanger. It's so hard for us to see those continuous images and then look at us and reconcile our own bodies. So here I am, you know, I, I got my PhD in, in health psychology with a fundamental focus on nutrition. I taught nutrition for 30 years, and yet what I'm talking about is psychology before we even get into food stuff, (laughs) carbohydrates, fat, whatever. And it's also, even knowing all that, I want everyone to hear me say, I struggle with the same thing. Even with all of the good information, all of the right information, I live in the same poisonous culture that everyone else does about weight. And so I think what we have to understand too is that like how much are we willing to give up for the culture to pursue a certain kind of weight? And that I think is a really big thing. I want to say a couple more things. I know I'm going on. This is the best interview I've ever done. I I can just relax and listen to you. Oh, (laughs) this is great. Keep going. Talks too much. Always on my report. No, it's perfect. No. What I was going to say about that is that I think one of the things that we are very afraid of is to walk back on the culture and say, you know, I'm going to be a little softer and that's probably okay because, you know, we're worried a little bit about how we're going to feel about ourselves and how people are looking at us and what it means. And what it means is, you know, when you get a little softer, what people see is a lack of control because a perfectly controlled self is one that can control all of your behaviors and all your passions and not feed them with your mouth, right? And I just think that that's one of the most toxic kinds of things. Here's something else. We're supposed to love food. I mean, food is our sustenance. It's not the enemy. If we don't get enough food, then 
like that's the end of us. So what happened all of a sudden in our culture that we became food as sort of the enemy, which is the worst possible give and take, because at that give and take, we're saying, you know, don't you, food is the enemy, stay away from food, but also food is the thing that keeps you alive and you should only eat good food. And then you have this tongue that tastes everything so acutely and it's such a pleasure center, but we're like, ignore that. You need to ignore that. And that, that's really a tough thing to ask people to do on a regular basis. So what I remember what I was going to say, and that is this, and this is fascinating. We don't know how to healthfully, and when I say healthfully, I mean psychologically, bone health, heart health, everything. We do not know how to healthfully help women who are very close to their ideal weight lose weight. We don't know how to do it. And you know why we don't know how to do it? It's unethical to study it. So you are not allowed as a scientist to take a person who's at their ideal weight or close to it, not cultural ideal, physiological ideal, and study it because to reduce their weight would make them unhealthy. And we, as scientists, we have the Nuremberg trials that show us that we are not allowed to hurt our subjects. And reducing their weight past what would be considered ideal is unethical and not allowed. So that means all of the information you're reading about weight loss has been made for people, for men mostly, but also women or people that are extremely overweight, not in a normal range of overweight. So when you try to do those things and it doesn't work, you think you're weak. But in fact, they weren't meant for you. We don't know how to help people lose weight who are close to their weight because it's not a healthy thing to do. We don't want you to look good in a swimsuit. We want your bones to be dense. We want you to be psychologically healthy and not thinking about food all the time and searching for food, which is exactly what happens when we reduce your calorie intake to the point where you become a person who's constantly thinking in the back of their head, so when are we going to eat again? So we do know a little bit about behavioral. We know how to you know, ask people not to eat snacks and that kind of thing. But if you are in a calorie deficit and your body knows that you're in a calorie deficit, all your body knows, it's like your dog or your, a mouse is, I'm a little hungry. And so when you should be thinking about this book that you're reading or this podcast that you're doing or this other thing that you're working on, there is this niggling constant tap on your shoulder saying, you know what, you're kind of hungry. You're a little bit hungry. And so eventually when you stop doing whatever it is that's distracting you and you start to get tired, well, that's when the Doritos come out and you're like, I'm tired, I'm hungry. And you don't know why you can't stop eating, but it's the psychological drive. There's a, in fact, a super great study that was done in the fifties that we couldn't even do anymore on men called the Keys, Minnesota Keys study. And it's about the calorie restricted men and then they watched their behavior. And what they did, A, they became what we normally consider a woman's behavior or an eating disorder behavior, eating disorder. They searched for food. They ate too much food. They drank too much coffee. They drank too much water. They chewed too much gum, all because they were in a deficit. And then they, did, they became eating disordered in a true sense because, and they were psychologically healthy, very lean men, but they put them on a calorie restriction, which is what we do with women all the time. We're like, you have a tiny little body fat. Stop eating. Exercise more. And now we're in a deficit, and then we have this tap on our shoulder. So 
you put that on top of being fatigued all the time, which what woman is not fatigued? I mean, if you go on Twitter or on Facebook, there is 8 million coffee coffee jokes about how we all need coffee. Like we need coffee. I need coffee. I just said to my daughter today, Oh my God, my best friend is coffee. And <laughs> I'm holding it. I'm like, I know, I know, I know, as we talk, but yes, I know. Yeah. So after saying all that about the psychology of eating, I would say the number one tip I tell people, the number one thing you have to do before you ever change any other thing in your life is you have to get enough sleep. And here's why you have to get enough sleep. If you're tired, you're not going to chop vegetables. You're not going to grocery shop. If you're tired, you're not going to saute something. If you're tired and you're starving, which most of us are, if we're in a diet situation and we're living an American life, you are absolutely not going to be searching things and making food prep and doing all these things that we're asking you to do because we're reducing your calories. Like you're too tired to do that. And you're too tired to hold back any kind of normal, healthy mammal behavior, which is to go look for food. And so, and the other thing is, if you're tired, and when I say tired, I kind of mean sleep deprived because most people are a little bit sleep deprived. What happens when you're sleep deprived is you become an abnormal carbohydrate metabolizer which means you act a little bit like you're diabetic. And so you know that feeling because two things happen. You get a little lightheaded, and that's what ketosis is. And don't even get me started on ketosis and eating the the high-fat diets and keto diets, because if you become ketosis and you go into the hospital, they will fix that because it's an abnormal state. Like it is not a good state. And there are so many problems with it. Having said that, you start to feel a little dizzy. That's one thing. And you start to crave carbohydrates in a way that doesn't make sense to you. Like all of a sudden you just, you want sugar. Honestly, you're like, it's the end of the day and you're like, God, I could really use some sugar. That is sleep deprivation. And that also means that as an abnormal carbohydrate metabolizer, you're going to store fat faster. And even when you're sleeping, you're doing that. So because your body needs to be fully rested to metabolize in the way that it needs to metabolize food. Sleep is the number one health behavior. In fact, I'm like a sleep evangelist. Like I, I'm a sleepy person anyway, and I sleep a lot. So I think I was sort of forced into that, but there is never a day that I don't get eight to nine hours of sleep ever. Yeah. And that changed my life in the best of ways. And what I found that, and now people will say, well, I'm not, I mean, that right there is enough for people to go, I'm not doing that. Like, I can't do that. I'm going to drop my calories, going to do keto. I'm going to do whatever it is I have to do, but I'm not getting enough sleep. And I get that. But what I would say is absolutely without fail, I became more productive when I got more sleep. Because then when I, with a fully slept mind, I can focus and do more work. I mean, for God's sake, I get a lot done in a day. And the reason that happens is because I get enough sleep and I nap. That's the other thing. I always nap every day, no matter what. Yep. I nap every day. And I know that, like, I'm not saying everybody needs my amount of sleep, like nine hours is average, but it, whatever it is, whatever you think it is. Oh, I can even tell you whether you need more or not. Do you want to hear this? Yes. Okay. Here's how you know. If you do without, without caffeine, so you have to do it without a stimulant. So you can't take your Adderall and you can't take your caffeine for the day that you're going to check this out. But here's what happens. If you sleep a normal week period, you know, where you're normally in and out, and then on the day that you're not having caffeine or whatever, 
you sit and do something boring, usually driving. Like if you're in the Midwest, it's driving, but it could be something other that's really dull. Like, I'm sorry, but I think church can be very dull. And if I'm sitting in church or if I'm driving and the sun is hitting me and I fall asleep, then I'm, I'm sleep deprived. And here's why. Because whenever the attention in the room goes down, your body that's sleep deprived goes, oh, things are quieting down. This is a good time to take a nap. I don't need my full attention right now and I'm going to fall asleep. So if, though, you don't fall asleep and you fidget and you haven't been on caffeine, then your body says, okay, I'm kind of bored. Like I need a little stimulation. I don't need any sleep. I need stimulation. And that's how you can tell. So when normally, like when the activity level goes down and you start to fall asleep, chances are you're sleep deprived. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, it does, right? It does make sense. <laughs> yeah. But I had to read the research on it to really understand it because I was like, oh, because I just thought that maybe I was oversleeping or maybe I was, I don't know, not, I don't know. I thought a lot of things. I thought, oh, just go have another cup of coffee or whatever. So, and the part that, I mean, there was so much in there that I found totally interesting. Sorry, so I could have a hundred conversations with you now, but the part I want to go back to is women who don't necessarily have to lose, say, a hundred pounds, but want to lose <laughs> twenty pounds or ten pounds or five yeah. pounds. They still want to do that. It doesn't Absolutely. mean they're going to starve. Sometimes you could say, you know, it's it's weight you don't necessarily need to have on you. You might feel better. Your knees might feel better. There are, there are reasons to get rid of that, even though it's not a significant amount. Even though science hasn't studied it, what do you do then to get rid of those pounds versus without the voice saying you're hungry all the time or having yeah. to rely on all those things? What What should we do? How should we do it? The perfect question. You asked the perfect question. So how do you do it? So there's a couple of things that you can do. The first thing is sleep. You have to sleep because your body will hang on to that body weight. If you're sleep deprived, it won't give you a hand. It will fight you the whole way because it needs to. Okay. So that's the first thing. And I know that's not a thing that people really like to hear, but that's the first thing. The next thing is we have to stop. We have to start thinking about our bodies as our best friends and stop thinking about it like it's, it's fighting us, right? And so we have to give it the nutrition that it needs without overnutrition. Because what, you know, what, what putting on weight is just overnutrition. It's just, you know, you don't need all of those things. So the other thing is drink enough water. And the reason you need to drink enough water is because often we interpret hunger as water, as thirst. And so, you know, it's a hard one because you're also having to go to the bathroom all the time, which is really a pain. But I'm not going to say anything new to you about how do you do it? Because really, we know, we know what we have to do, right? We have to sleep. We have to drink water. We have to move every day. We have to move more than we don't move. And I'm not saying you have to do Pilates or yoga or run a triathlon. I would say, in fact, you probably don't need to do those things to the extent that you think you need to do those things. And the exercise isn't going to save you unless you do so much that there isn't time for anything else. So that doesn't really make sense. Exercise is, is something that we do for our health, but not necessarily for weight loss. Although it does work, I'm saying, because it is a calorie deficit, but it doesn't work like it can, right? It thinks. And there's I have a stuff on my blog that specifically does the math on that. And I would say that you have to be very careful about getting the right kind of nutrients. And I, there is a, so much misinformation out there, like keto diets and the coffee with butter and the 
so many, so much misinformation. I know Weight Watchers is something that you talked about before, and Weight Watchers is actually the best program. I mean, without a doubt, it is the best program. The only issue that I have with it is that it requires you to be very diligent. And then when you're not so diligent, you put it back on. Mm. And I think that that's really the only place where it can be a problem. Because with that diligence comes deprivation. And with deprivation, we fall off the wagon all the time. So what we have to do is be, when we're doing it, we have to be less diligent on the program so that it's easier to maintain as we move forward, which also means that 10 pounds is going to take longer to lose. That's okay. You have an interesting life. Nobody can see it on you anyway. You just have to allow yourself the time it takes to do it because what you're doing is you're changing the course of the Titanic. You're changing your health behaviors as you move differently. Because I can tell you when I've gained weight, I've moved the Titanic in the wrong direction. Like I've changed all my healthy behaviors. I've stopped doing those things. And now I have to kind of move myself back to the way that I was before. But it's so easy to slip moving the Titanic in that direction because we're inundated so much with misinformation about food and there's so much delicious food out there. Does that help? Yes, but I get it. Okay, but I'm, pre- I'm loving my body, blah, blah, blah. Yes, yeah. you know, whatever. And I'm pretending I'm having a good night's sleep, which of course I'm not, but let's just pretend. <laughs> now it comes time to eat and I'm not going to do a crazy, you know, personally, like I don't eat a crazy diet. I eat like whole, I'm trying really hard to eat like regular whole foods, anti-inflammatory, Mediterranean, whatever I'm trying. Yeah, right. And once you get in that and you get rid of the sugar all the time, I found my cravings to be like, almost gone. And whereas they were constant before, right. And my mood is actually much more stable now that I'm not having huge sugar highs and lows all the time. But how do you just stay eating the right foods and what is overnutrition? Is it just eating too much? Like, is it too much salmon, too many grapes? Do you know what I mean? Like, can I really feel guilty about that? I don't think so. No. Okay. So here's what you need to do. You need to figure out what your weakness is when you get weak. Mm -hmm. So what is it? Uh, sugar, anything with sugar. Okay, me too. So, yeah. And because it's those lapses that are stopping you from moving forward. Now, that's not to say you always need to get rid of it. This is what I do. This is my rule. I am not allowed to eat sugar until 7 o'clock at night, period. And I have adopted that rule my for years, and I actually don't break that rule because it's been that rule for so many years. So I find that after seven o'clock at night, I don't usually want it. And it's really close to my bedtime. (laughs) So that may not be the rule that works for you. You have to figure out when is it that you do the thing that you are, that's hurting your diet the most, whatever that is. And then you don't have to worry about if you're mostly doing like what you say you're doing, which I totally believe, because that's really most of us. I mean, then, well, I mean, it is now that I'm focusing on it, but I certainly wasn't doing it before. But yes, I am doing it now, but I won't do it forever, I'm sure. But anyway, sorry. Right. No, no, but it, it's all the same. Like if it doesn't matter whether it was before or after, you still probably have the same weakness before as you do yes. now, right? Yes. So you don't have to, this is the best news ever. You don't have to problem solve your whole diet. You only have to problem solve that weakness. Because that's the thing that's putting you over the edge, right? So I know 
So I have to problem solve sugar, like nobody's business, because sugar, I love sugar more than I love anything in the world. And it's so satisfying and so wonderful in so many ways, in varies in so many ways that it can come to me, right? So I have to think about it every single time and whether I, I'm going to do it or not. Now, a lot of times when I'm weak about sugar, it's when I'm tired, right? Or it's when, you know, something's happening in my life that's hard or I use it for that, right? So I have to see when I'm weak, what I'm eating, if it's worth it. I have to problem solve that and only that, which I kind of love that that's the thing. Because I would say that most of us kind of know what we're supposed to be doing. And we are constantly like, should I eat this salmon? Should I have another bite of this salmon? Is the salmon the problem? The salmon is never the problem. (laughs) The grapes are never the problem. Nobody got fat eating too much salmon and grapes. No one ever did, right? So our issues are whatever it is that we keep falling down on. Like if you look back at your behavior before you focused, what were those things? Because you're going to fall back into those. So what you should do is make a list of those and then problem solve those and get super creative about them. So I can give you some examples. Like, like I said that I don't eat sugar after at seven o'clock at night because seven o'clock at night is when I want them. And so what I find is that I get a, like I fall asleep, like sugar makes me tired. So it's got this inherent reasoning why I do it that way. And it's helpful that way. So sort of the benefits outweigh the negatives. So whatever it is that you're doing. So other things that I'll do is like, I will put, if I, if I say to myself, and life is too short, you need to have some sugar sometimes. Now, don't laugh, but I put it in the trunk of my car so that if I'm in bed and I want sugar, I have to go outside to the trunk of my car to get it. And I almost never will. I know that sounds silly, but that's really a useful thing for me. Say like other things that I'll do is I'll be like, I won't go get it at all. Like if I'm having a really hard time, I will have no sugar in the house. And then, except for like a bag of sugar, but I'm not really interested in the bag of sugar, right? Right, right. Yep. So I make it really hard on me to get it. Now, if my kids want sugar or something like that, again, it goes out in the car in the basement. Because what we found is it doesn't matter. This is really good research. That if you have sugar on your table or in your cupboards in the kitchen, piece of cake, it's easy to get. If you just move it to the basement or down one floor from you, you can reduce your eating of that sugar by 50%. If you put it in a bag, a brown bag where you can't see the label, you will reduce it by another 10%. Like it's amazing what you can do by not looking at it. And all the sugar manufacturers know it, right? Everything's in a pink box. A chocolate kiss is wrapped in a silver container with a little friendly little flag. You know, we all have, we have to look at what marketers do to get us to eat and eat too much of it and do the opposite. We have to understand that. And this is amazing. I feel like I've gotten so many specific actionable tips that people that can, that everybody can use in different ways and the insight and science behind it all in a little half an hour package. So thank you. This is perfect. (laughs) Thank you so much. And it makes it feel like, you know, that the, the work is not so massive, that there's one yeah. thing, you fix one, one part of it. And that's not to say it's not a challenge to give things up, but also it's achievable. So anyway, 
Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Anytime you want to talk about it, just call me up. But we don't have to do it on a podcast either. We could do it on the phone. Then. Okay, fine. cool. All right. Okay. Well, I might. <laughs> okay, that'd be fine. Okay. Good. It's so good to talk to you. So good to talk to you too. Thank you so much. You're Thanks. welcome. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. Don't forget to follow the private support group at Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight on Instagram. Thanks.